You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I want to invite you as you're taking your seats to open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah chapter 7. And if you're using the Pew Bible, apparently we don't know what page it's on this morning, so you let us know. Uh, Awesome. Um, Pop quiz, what page is it on? Um, And then if you're using the YouVersion Bible app on your phone or your tablet, that's going to be easier for you. Just follow us in the I'm sorry? 471. It's a little interactive. Fun. It's like a scavenger hunt. What page is it on? 471. Okay, Isaiah 7. And as we're starting out uh, this, what's known as the season of Advent to prepare for Christmas, what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is we're going to be learning about the origin and the history of selected carols of the season. What we're going to do is we're going to consider the biblical passages that these songs derive from, as well as we're going to get into a little explanation and some of the meaning behind the lyrics of these songs that we treasure. And my hope is that along the way, we will be reminded of the true message of what, or more appropriately, who we are celebrating this time of year. And we're going to start this morning by looking at a great song, a classic, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We all know that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the thing is, the English version of this song actually goes back to the mid-19th century. That's 19th century. That's pretty old. But the truth is, the origin of this song goes back even further than that. There's evidence of this song possibly existing as early as the 6th century. And that means O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is one of the oldest uh, songs that we have in, in our church hymnals. Originally, this song was a chant. It was a series of seven prayers chanted by Benedictine monks in the week, the seven days leading up to Christmas. These ancient cloister chants were turned into a metrical Latin poem in 1100. And at that point, when they were translated into this poem in Latin in the year 1100, this version survived and actually went spread out throughout local monasteries in France and Germany until it was finally printed and even more widely distributed in 1700. And then in the following century, around the year 1840, the poem fell onto the desk of an Anglican priest named Jason Mason, John, excuse me, John Mason Neal, who had a habit, a hobby, let me, let me know if anyone has this hobby. His hobby was translating medieval Greek and Latin hymns. Is that anybody's hobby? Is that falling out of fashion? Yeah, yeah. So that was his hobby, and he actually translated this ancient hymn, ancient uh, poem, into a hymn, into a song. Now, Neil's version of this hymn actually continued to evolve at the hands of numerous other writers over the course of a decade. And that's why you'll actually, if you've ever heard this song, you'll hear some different variations of verses in it. But in fact, it was this continual development of the song. He translated it into English, but it was this development that finally took some time before it settled into the familiar and haunting tune, the actual music that we now sing when we sing this song. Now, all of this is the origin and development of the hymn is interesting, at least to me, but it's the content of the song that's our focus today. 
And if you didn't know this, this hymn is rooted, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in the prophecies of Isaiah. And specifically in the prophecy that comes out of Isaiah 7, which we're going to read that, pro- that bit of that prophecy in just a moment. But let me give you a little background in terms of what's happening in terms of the biblical story, what's going on. At the point in which this is taking place, I, uh, Israel has become a divided kingdom. It's split in two. The southern kingdom of Judah is actually under attack at this moment from those who were once her fellow countrymen. The n- southern kingdom of Judah is actually under attack from the northern kingdom of Israel, the breakoff, and the nation of Syria. So Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria have, have ganged up together to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And the reason for this assault is to try to coerce Judah to join them in fighting back against the rising Assyrian Empire uh, that is kind of overtaking everything. And the plan is to attack Judah and depose her king, King Ahaz, in order to get them to fall in line. In the midst of all this, God sends a prophet, a prophet named Isaiah, to tell King Ahaz not to give in to fear, to trust in his faithfulness, despite how dire things appear for Judah. And with that context, let's hear a little bit from Isaiah chapter 7. We're starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it is in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough? To try the patience of humans, will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we, we, we just read a little bit of this, but we're coming in the midst of a, this dialogue where, again, God is speaking through Isaiah to Ahaz to encourage him, again, not to give in to fear, to trust in God's faithfulness. And what we, what we just read was the Lord actually going a step further in this conversation in, in encouraging Ahaz by basically saying, look, I'm going to offer you a sign. And if you caught this, God does something really fa- fascinating. God doesn't say, I'm not just going to offer you any sign at first. He actually invites Ahaz to name the sign. What, what, do, you need to, what do you need? Name it. You, highest heights, low, whatever it is, you name the sign, and I will give it to you to show you not to be afraid and to trust me. But you heard it shockingly, amazingly, as God is challenging Ahaz to believe and to be blessed, and as God offers Ahaz this chance For a basis for belief, right? Something to hold on to. Shockingly, disappointingly, King Ahaz refuses this invitation and challenge. He claims it would not be right to test the Lord in this way. But don't miss this. Don't misunderstand what's happening here. This is false piety on King Ahaz's part. Ahaz is hiding his lack of faith behind his false piety. Because look, keep in mind what's happening here. It's the Lord who initiated this invitation and challenge, not Ahaz. It's never testing God to do what he says. Rather than putting the Lord to the test, what's happening here is Ahaz is disobeying what God has commanded him to do. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign because when the Lord fulfills it, Ahaz would have no choice but to believe. And you heard it, despite Ahaz's disobedience, the Lord declares, I'm giving you a sign anyway. And it's really important before we jump into hearing this prophecy in relationship to Jesus, which is what we're all familiar with, 
We need to recognize and honor the significance of this prophecy in King Ahaz's own day. I mean, God doesn't all of a sudden say, I'm going to give you a sign that's going to be much, much later. God is speaking immediately in the sense of, I'm giving you a sign for right now. And the sign is that a young woman in the royal household, shortly married, will conceive a son and unknowingly name him Emmanuel. And within a few years, and this is the next part of the prophecy we didn't read, within a few years, before this boy can come to eat solid food, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and Syria, who are attacking you, will be defeated. So the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is at first a sign of deliverance for Ahaz and Judah from the rest, from the threat of the northern kingdom and Syria. And the name given to this boy, Emmanuel, which means God with us, was intended at first in the immediacy of this prophecy to do two things. To, on the one hand, assure King Ahaz in the face of his enemies that God was with him, but at the same time, Once fulfilled, this sign would serve as an indictment in Ahaz and Judah for their lack of faith in believing in the Lord. Now, this I'm highlighting this for you because this outcome of God saying, don't fear, trust me, I'm faithful, I'll come through for you, and not believing and saying, no, I don't believe you, no, I won't, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. The story of the Old Testament, one way to characterize it, is one of Israel's nagging doubt and repeated failure to live as the Lord instructed and commanded them, despite God's persistent faithfulness and mighty acts of provision. And this is, so what we're seeing here is just a cycle that we've seen over and over again. But if you know this story, if you know how the Old Testament ends, eventually all of this, this cycle finally catches up to Israel. It finally enough is enough. They've split, and what's going to eventually happen is both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, once one, now separated, they are finally going to lose everything because of their continued rejection and disobedience. They're going to lose everything. They're going to lose the land. They're going to lose the temple. They're going to lose their way of life as the people of Israel become a scattered community living throughout the world, the known world, in exile. And it's here. This is the moment when all of a sudden the words of Isaiah and other prophets, all of a sudden they change. Or they don't change. The change is in how they're heard. Because it's all of a sudden at the seeming dead end of Israel's captivity to foreign empire after foreign empire, that suddenly uh, there's a reframed understanding and expectation of what, not just what we read here in Isaiah chapter 7, but all of the promises God reveals through Isaiah as well as the other prophets. Because there's, a, there's something that still hasn't happened that God has promised, so there must be more. It must, what the prophets were pointing to had, to do, had meant something in that time, but there's stuff that's not been fulfilled yet, so there must be more, even though it seems like it's crazy. We've lost everything. We're not a people anymore. We're spread out. We're in exile. But there was this sense that God's not done yet. And it all harkened back, even before the prophets, it all harkened back to an assurance made to David. Israel's second and arguably best ruler. The promise of a king that David was given. The promise of a king from his family line who would reign forever. It was the foretelling of a true, perfect, and faithful ruler who would deliver his people from themselves. Not only their enemies around them, but the enemy within. Their own self-imposed exile and death. Death due to their lack of faith and obedience towards God. 
This king, it was said, would be like no other king before or since. Because this king would restore God's presence and relationship with his people, not just for a season of time, but in a manner that brought them home eternally. And so all of a sudden, it's in this reframed expectation, this reframed understanding, this sense of a Messiah, a Savior who's coming, that we see the gospel writers picking up on this when they start to reveal who Jesus is. Matthew, in particular, one of the original New Testament disciples, specifically identifies, as he writes his gospel account, Jesus as the one to whom this prophecy in Isaiah, as well as other Old Testament prophecies, point to. And this brings us to our hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, if you haven't heard it in a while or sung it, the words are rooted in these prophecies, these prophecies about and their realization in Jesus Christ. In fact, the verses of of this song are 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 more formally known as antiphons. That's the formal name. They're not called verses. They're called antiphons. And an antiphon is a sung response to a psalm or a biblical text. And what happens in this song, if you haven't looked at it in a while, and you can actually open up that red hymnal if you want to turn and look at it while I'm talking, that would be cool. You don't have to. But these antiphons, these verses, begin with a messianic title from the prophets that foreshadowed the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. And then after a brief elaboration of the implication of that messianic title, each verse ends with a plea for Jesus to come, for Emmanuel to come. And so I want you to understand why we sing this song and what this song should mean to us. First and foremost, the lyrics of this song draw us into the story of those who lived before Christ came. Can you ever imagine that? What was that world like before there was Jesus? This song draws us into that worldview, that perspective, before Christ came. We're drawn specifically into the story of Israel, the darkness of her exile, her desperate longing to see the Lord's intervening light on the horizon. The words of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel convey for us the hope of Israel that are based on God's promises. So for us, on the other side of the first Christmas, as we sing this song as followers of Jesus, we are reminded to look back, reminded to look back in awe and wonder at the most astonishing and inconceivable moment in history, the birth of Emmanuel, of God come down in the flesh, down in our humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. We remember through Jesus' first coming, his birth, that Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises of God, expressed through the prophets, all those promises to set Israel and all the nations free. However, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, with its several verses, is unique in that it not only calls us to look back, we start there, but this incredible song also calls us to be present as well as to look forward to the coming of Christ in our lives. Here in the church, you heard allusions to it when we lit the wreath. We celebrate what's called Advent, the season of Advent. And the season of Advent is a means of preparing for Christmas. The word Advent comes from the Latin. It actually means the coming. And Advent's not biblical. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible. It was created by the church, the early church community, A couple generations later, it was created as an intentional time leading up to Christmas 
for followers of Jesus to be reminded of the three comings of Christ. Three. The first of which begins with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. That's the first. But the second is the coming of Christ daily into our lives through his spirit. And the third is the anticipation of Jesus coming again in glory at the end of time. The lyrics and the music of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel vividly mingle together to invoke all three of these comings in Christ. When we sing this song, we don't just look back, we acknowledge also the present, that Israel's story is our story. Israel's story is the story of all humanity. We acknowledge that we as human beings previously have and repeatedly continue to exist in denial and disobedience of the way our creator, our God, designed this world and all of us together in it to be and to become. And not just Israel, but all of human history is checkered by relational and communal brokenness, abuses of power based on fear, and as a result, blatant and rampant injustice. Like Israel, we are helpless. We are our own worst enemy. We need a Savior who can rescue us from ourselves, liberate, heal, and make us whole, all we were meant to be, all we can be together. When we sing this song, we not only look back to remember God was with Israel, we remember Emmanuel, God with us in Christ. Through Jesus, all he said and did, culminating in his willing sacrifice for the sins of the world on the cross, and three days later, his absolute victory over death Through his resurrection, our once and future king, our long-awaited Messiah, the risen Christ, seeks to be born anew daily in the reclamation and transformation of our lives. Is that how you think about Christmas this year? That Jesus seeks to be born anew, to reclaim your life, to transform who you are. Do we even think this way? Do we even ponder such questions? Do we ask ourselves, from what do we need ransoming? Ransoming. From what do we still need to be saved? We are works in progress. Yes, we have prayed the prayer. Yes, we have asked Jesus into our heart, however you want to phrase it. But our work, God is working out our salvation. From what do we still need to be saved? Do we need to still be saved from ourselves? Do we need to be saved from our desire to buy more, to own more? Do we need to be saved from our desire to be more than the person next to us? Do we need to be saved from our desire to earn the approval of others, our desire to merit the attention we seek? Do we need to be saved from our desire to live for ourselves, our desire to judge and condemn others? Do we need to be saved from our desire to do the easy thing? rather than the right thing? Where are we still living in exile from Jesus? Have you thought about that? Have you pondered? Have you given some time just to ask yourself, where are we still living in exile from Jesus? Where, as the song tells us, are the gloomy clouds of night and death's deep shadow still hanging over us? I look at each one of you, some of you I know better than others. But one thing I believe, for you and for me, I believe each of us is held captive by something this morning. It may be sadness or grief. It may be envy or strife. It may be 
suffering or loss. But something this morning casts a shadow over us. Something is keeping us in exile from the fullness of the life for which we were made. What is it for you? Is it addiction? Is it depression? Loneliness? Illness? That sense of helplessness? Is it worry? Is it fear? This is a time of year when we try to set such things aside for a few weeks, right? You know, we try to set those kind of things that I'm talking about aside and instead get lost in all the lights and the tinsel and the marshmallow of the holiday season. Some of us are really good at living in denial, especially at Christmas. We live in denial by spending money we don't have. We live in denial by becoming intoxicated with as much holly and jolly as we can consume. We live in denial by making merry despite all that looms beneath the surface of our lives. Some of us are so good at living in denial, especially at Christmas. But others of us, for others of us, the bliss of ignorance escapes us. Our heartbreak, our frustration, our anxiety, our dread become all the more acute, especially at Christmas. Try as we may with everyone else to cast our burdens aside, they surprise us when we least expect it. And they leave us helpless not to just pick them back up. And for us, the most wonderful time of year leaves us exhausted rather than joyous. You know, I mean, sometimes the burdens of life can become so heavy We can't remember what hope feels like. O come, O come, Emmanuel. You know it. The song has that chorus, that call. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. That chorus declares God is with us. That God's love for the world is revealed in Jesus, not just in the past, but in the present. Hear that this morning. While once long ago, God made himself to be like us because we could not be like him. The arrival of Christmas since, year after year, assures us Jesus is daily born into the darkness of our lives to make us into who he is. Every day, God in Christ through the Holy Spirit continues to pursue, to prompt, and ultimately transform us to be like him. Beloved, what we are is not yet who we will be. Truly understanding the gift of Jesus is realizing God with us in Christ is not just the unexpected and complete forgiveness of our sins. Please, it is that the unexpected and complete forgiveness of our sins, but truly embracing the fullness of God with us in Christ is realizing it's so much more. It is the presence of a patient, cleansing love that keeps working upon us until all that is wrong in us and in this world is made right. 
So as we count down to Christmas this year, I want to encourage you, as we count down to Christmas this year, let us, along with all the presents that we'll put under the tree, instead of stuffing, instead of denying, instead of putting it somewhere else, let's lay down our deepest fears, our most painful hurts before the manger and cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and let this Jesus be our comforter and our guide. Christ God is with us in our present. But this treasured hymn, this beloved hymn, I told you, it calls us back to, to, calls us to look back to remember the birth of our salvation. It calls us, as we've just talked about, to recognize Jesus born anew in our present circumstances. But don't forget the third part. It also calls us to look forward to anticipate Christ coming again. During this time of year, while we may repeatedly hear or even ourselves invoke notions of peace on earth and goodwill to everyone, I mean, we look around and we cannot help but see this world is anything but peaceful. Goodwill to everyone is not a reality. I mean, close to home, within our own state, fires have devastated our land. Flash floods and other types of weather in other parts of the world. There's unrest, continued unrest, corruption, violence that threaten communities throughout the globe. And it's not just the land or the world that's not the way it should be. We, we look around and we can't help but see that we are not all that we should be to each other. We here are here and yet many needlessly go hungry or die because of a lack of clean water. Others have nowhere to lay their head or find themselves denied mercy and justice because of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status. There is much, if we look around and see, if we listen and pay attention, there is much we cannot understand about our world as it is. We cannot fathom why the innocent suffer. We cannot fathom why evil has such opportunity. We cannot fathom why God doesn't just make things better now. But in our pain and in our puzzlement, O come, O come, Emmanuel, gives voice to something that keeps us going. Something that gives us strength in the midst of all of our sorrow and confusion. And it's hope. The name of hope. I mentioned earlier that each of the verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel begin with a messianic title derived from the words of the prophets who foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Each of these titles is the name of hope, the hope we have in Christ. In the original Latin version of this hymn, there were actually seven such titles, and if you watch the screen, those titles are going to come up for you to see in just a second, and I'm briefly going to touch on each one of them. The first is Septentia, wisdom. And wisdom was a name, a title, messianic title, referring to the personification of wisdom that's used several times in Scripture to refer to God. And it's this idea of recognizing the one who can bring order into the chaos of our lives, who reveals divine truth and leads us down the path of knowledge. Oh, wisdom. O Adonai is another title that's invoked in this song. And it refers Adonai to the ancient title of God. The ancient title of God, not the name, the title. That title was Lord. 
Because the sacred name of God, Yahweh, you might remember this, was not uttered out of respect for the holiness of God. So Adonai was used instead. And so the invoking of O Adonai is pointing to the one who is alone, Lord of our lives. The third title is Radix of Jesse. Radix, which means root of Jesse. And it's connecting this one who comes, who brings salvation to the world as stemming from the line of covenant promise, the family tree of David. The fourth is Clavis of David in the Latin, and it means key of David. And it declares the one who, op- who, the one who unlocks the chains of our sin and opens the doorway of our salvation that no one can shut. And then the fifth is Orens, O Orens, which translates dayspring, but literally means O morning star. And this title points to the one who is the rising sun, the light of the world that eclipses the darkness and brings the break, the dawn of a new day. The sixth title is O Rex Genitum, O desire of nations, or literally translated O king of the Gentiles pointing and hailing the one who is the king of the world, the cornerstone that binds all people together and fills the whole world with the glory of heaven's peace, not by force, but through service. And the seventh and last title we're very familiar with, this is a name of hope we know, Emmanuel, God with us. Now with that on the screen, here's the kicker. Someone discovered in, the, in this ancient chant that goes back to potentially the 6th century, that if you take the first letter of each verse in Latin, not the O, the first letter of the word after the O, it actually creates an acronym, SARCOR. And the next slide will show this to you. And if you read that word SARCOR backwards, it's Aerocras, which is Latin for tomorrow I will come. Tomorrow I will come. And I told you this, I don't know if you caught it, our ancestors of old used to sing They used to chant, used to pray these seven titles for the seven days leading up to Christmas. And I think it would be really good for us. I would encourage you, as you prepare for Christmas, as we prepare for Christmas, maybe chanting isn't your thing, but praying these seven great verses, calling afresh Christ to come, calling Jesus by each of these mysterious and yet revealing titles he has been given. And as you do, remember Remember, beloved, that in our frustrations and our yearning, as we ache for the day when justice will prevail over all the earth, God is with us. Jesus will unbind us from all that holds us in bondage, and he will lead us into the light of a new day when all that is wrong will be made right. We have hope in Christ. In all our imperfections and worry, as we long for the answer to all our mistakes and failures, beloved, do not forget, God is with us. Jesus shelters us in God's promises to redeem all things for his glory. We have hope in Christ. In all our doubts and our fears, as we wait and wait for a time when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Beloved, God is with us. Jesus joins us in our weeping. Jesus invites us to believe he can bring life to that which seems dead. We have hope in Christ. For as we look back and remember the willingness of God to approach us through Jesus and make us his people once again, we can be assured of the Lord's current desire for us 
and for this world. As we look back and remember his faithfulness to come as he said he would, as we realize his presence in our lives today, we can be assured of his returning, that Jesus is coming back. In the repeated pleading words of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is this universal longing for something better. And in this rousing chorus, calling us to rejoice is the sound of our present hope as a ransomed people waiting for the darkness once and for all to give way to the dawn, for the kingdom of God to be consummated and for a new heavens and earth to emerge. I don't know where you're coming from today, but if you are at all feeling stampeded by the Christmas rush, I invite you to step back and enter into a space that can bring clarity and sanity to this time of year. Enter into the waiting of Advent. Enter into the waiting of Advent not just to give yourself time to get all the shopping and the decorating and the baking and the office parties and the Christmas cards and the Sunday school programs and the choir performances and all the other traditions, secular and sacred, done, squeezed in. No. Enter into the waiting of Advent to give yourself the time for quiet, meditative, this contemplative rhythm where you can slow down, where you can clear your head and open your heart anew so you are ready to receive and proclaim the greatest gift in the history of the world. The gift that keeps on giving. For when we sing this beloved ancient hymn, we are not only celebrating the first Christmas, the birth of our Savior Jesus. We're not just preparing for this Christmas, the birth of Jesus anew in our lives. We're also anticipating the last and greatest Christmas of all, when Christ will come again to make all things new, including us. Amen.